someone insults you and you want to yell back at them. But you know that yelling, you know, anger, you know, that, that that is not a great trait. That's not emulating God. So you contain yourself. You say, you know what? I'm going to let it go. You know what the Talmud says about such a person? The Talmud says that someone who was insulted and didn't insult back, you mean you were able to contain yourself, you held yourself, all of your sins are forgiven. Why? Why would all your sins be forgiven? It's an amazing thing. All of your sins. Imagine, someone, someone says to you in, in synagogue, right, um, so you decided to finally show up and everybody starts laughing, right? And you're like, right? And you're all insulted. You're like, well, I, I was, I, you wanted to answer back that you were here last week. You wanted to answer, right? But you're insulted. Everyone laughed. Everyone got a good laugh, a good chuckle. Yeah, like, eh, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> you know, Gary with his jokes, right? And you're, you're, you're insulted to your core. Whatever it is, you know, it could be on anything. And you don't respond. You don't respond. We'll talk about why this is so important. Okay, we'll talk about this. We'll have met a long, long year ahead of us discussing all of these different traits and how they work. But where we left off last week is that a human being is vertical while an animal is horizontal. A human being is vertical because our mind needs to be on top. It needs to be our primary uh, decider of how we act, while by an animal they operate only by instinct. You know, that cat, that little kitten, when it's one day old, you put it on the rooftop, it'll walk to the end of the roof. It'll know how to walk. It'll walk to the end of the roof, and it looks down, it sees there's a drop, turns around, walks away. Because it is born ba-ma. It's called behema. An animal is ba-ma. It has all of its instincts inborn from day number one. From the day, it, from the moment it is born, it has all its instincts. Now, its instincts get a little sharper over time, but the instincts are there. Human beings were born blah, nothing, no instincts. Right? The only instinct we have is survival, so we know we need to eat, but that's it. It's the only instinct we have. We don't have any, any, any way to run. We don't have any way to hide. We don't know danger. We don't know hot from cold. Nothing. It's interesting that Adam, we mentioned, why do we have the name Adam? Adam. So we know because the Torah tells us in chapter 1, I believe it is, uh, or chapter number 2, it says, because God took Adam from the Adama from the earth, right? So there's a couple of understandings to that. Number one, Adama is earth. Earth, if you don't plant, nothing's gonna grow. You don't go at middle of some field that no one's ever, ever uh, uh, passed through and suddenly find a beautiful orchard, right? It doesn't work like that. Someone planted it, it doesn't just grow. You're not, you're right, in your backyard, you're not just gonna have an orange tree growing if you didn't plant an orange. Okay, if you didn't plant it, it's not going to grow. That's Adam. That's man. If we don't plant, we don't sow, we don't grow. We have to work hard on something for it to grow. So that's the first comparison between earth, but there's another comparison. 
that it's not referring to earth. It's referring to something different. Adam, from the terminology, Adame. Adame means to emulate. We emulate God. That is our job. Our job throughout our lifetime is to emulate God. God is kind. We're kind. God is merciful. We're merciful. God is forgiving. We're forgiving. And that's the, the idea. We have all the traits of God. The way in which God acts, we act. So Adam is coming from a very different idea of we're trying to emulate God. Okay? And that's the idea of Adam. But I want to talk about a few animals because it's always it's very entertaining and very enjoyable to understand. The Talmud says that if we did not have a Torah to teach us character, because after all, what do we learn from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? What do we learn from them? Right? Well, there are many different traits that we learn from them. It's really traits, essentially. We learn hospitality, we learn kindness, we learn, we learn forgiveness, we learn prayer. There are many traits. Because we don't see any mitzvahs. If the, the, we have to just step back a second. What is the Torah? The many think the Torah is a book of rules, right? The book of instruction. But that's not true because you only have two commandments in the entire book of Genesis. You have, right, till you go to the 14th or 15th portion which is deep in Exodus, you don't have any, really any significant mitzvahs. So you have three in Genesis, three mitzvahs in Genesis. Circumcision, right? be fruitful and multiply, visiting the sick, and that's it. And then you wait all the way till Beshalach in, 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 Sh- in Shemot, in, in the second book in Exodus, in the, in the third portion in the second book. And then that's where it starts giving us the list of all these mitzvahs. So this is a really poor book of, imagine you open up the, the, uh, the American Code of Law and the first uh, book of, is just telling you stories. Right? <laughs> You're like, G- give me the laws. Tell me one, two, three, four, right? No, no, that's not the way the Torah is. The Torah is not a book of laws. The Torah is a book of life. It's telling you how to live life. So the, Torah, so the Talmud asks, if we didn't have the Torah, where would we get those life lessons from? Where would we get those messages of how to conduct our lives? The Talmud says we would learn it from animals. God gave us animals to teach us character traits. And I'll give you a few of them. It says that when Adam named the animals, he spent some time getting to know the animals. Because in the name of every single person, in the name of every single thing, is the essence. In Hebrew, right? when someone has a name, the letters can combine the characteristic of the individual. So if someone has a name, uh, Avraham. Okay, the name Avraham, because it starts with the letter Aleph, usually means, what is the letter Aleph? It's the first letter, but Aleph also comes from the word Aluf. Aluf means master. If you look at the way the letter Aleph is written in the Torah, it's a com- combination of three letters. A Yud, a Yud, and a Vav. That's the number 26. Yud is 10, Yud is 10, and Vav is 6. That is God's name. And if you look at the top Yud, it has like a finger like this that points up to heaven to tell you Hashem is right above. 
Whenever you see the letter Aleph, it's referring to something spiritual. It's referring to a concept of godliness. So anyone who has the letter Aleph in their name is spiritual, has spiritual tendencies. And you take each letter and you, you derive its essence and you have a name which defines this person, the character of this person. And it's very interesting. If you know two people, David, you probably s- realize there are some similarities, you know, with 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 those Davids, right? You're like, you know, they're, they're they're similar a little, right? They're not the same, but they're similar. They have some similarities. It's not a coincidence because your name defines your essence of who you are. Your Hebrew name defines the essence of who you are. So, if you were to take an animal, an animal like a dog, man's best friend which I think is the worst insult to humanity. <laughs> no, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. And I, I have nothing against dogs. I love dogs. I think dogs are great. But to call that our best friend, that means that perhaps we're incapable of securing a responsible relationship. Let's understand what a dog does. So a guy comes home. He's newly married. And he... He walks into the house. His wife is so excited. They just got married. They just came back from their honeymoon. It's his first day back at work, and she's all dressed up. She's so excited. Her new, f- new uh, groom uh, is is coming home for the first time. She's so excited, right? She gets all made up, m- make up, um, and she's she's really excited. He comes home. He had one of the worst days at work ever. He's not in the mood of anything right now. He's not in the mood of seeing people. He's not in the mood of talking to people. All he wants is let me sit down, watch my sports, and, 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 and I don't want anyone bothering me. Okay, so she comes to greet him at the door. Imagine this, right? She comes to greet him at the door, and she's like, hey, honey. And he's like, I'm sorry. I, I really hate to do this, but I'm not in the mood for this right now. Okay, I really had a very difficult day today at work, and I, I just need to veg out a little. Okay, I need some time. Give me my television. Now, Take a vote here. Who thinks she's going to come do that again the next, the next day, come and greet him at the door like that? Anybody? Nobody. I don't think so. Why? We know that women are emotional, but women aren't stupid. All right? They're emotional, but they also have a brain. And the brain tells them, it hurt last time. I'm not going to do it again. I don't like to do something that's painful a second time. Let's take that same scenario. Even e- even if she has Rachmanis, still she'll be a little bit. I don't think it's a great idea to put everything on the line. All right, women, you agree with me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so let's take a different scenario. Okay, a guy comes home from work, had a difficult day, and greeting him at the door is his dog excited, wagging his tail, jumping on him, and he says, bad dog, go back, go away, right? What happens three minutes later? That dog comes right back, wagging its tail like nothing ever happened, right? Is that the only type of friendship we can handle? One that has no responsibility? One that has no, right, that has no accountability? 
Man's best friend? I don't think that should be man's best friend. I think our spouse should be our best friend. I think our children should be our best friend. Our parents should be our best friend. One that has accountability. One that we can be responsible, accountable for. And one that, that's not just forgiving and forgetting. So let's take what a dog is in Hebrew. A Hebrew in Hebrew, we know the word for dog is kelev. And that's a combination of two words. Kol lev, all heart. It's all emotion. It's all emotion. So it f it does a dog know what to do, when to do? It knows exactly what to do, when to do. But it doesn't have the intellect. It's smart. But it is what it is. It's controlled by its emotion. It's con controlled completely by its emotion. And that is a dog. So what are one of the things that we would learn from a dog is how to be forgiving, how to be forgetting, and to just show that love without any, you know, without any thoughts, without any doubts. Okay, it's not always a good thing. Again, but we have to learn what it is that we need to learn from each animal. Anybody heard of a camel in Hebrew? Anybody know what it's called? A gamal, right? A gamal. Gimel mem lamed. Gamal. And it's a very interesting animal. Because the, the, the trait of a camel is that it wants independence. It wants independence. That's it it wants. I want to drink so much water, fill up those humps, walk through the entire desert, and not need to ask my master for water. That's what he wants. Independence. What word in Hebrew rhymes or comes from the same root as gamal? The word gemilut chasadim. You talk about acts of loving kindness. Gomel chesed. Someone who does acts of kindness. Let's take what is a camel? Independent. It doesn't want to ask for help. What is doing acts of kindness? Putting someone on their feet so that they don't need to ask for help. Right? They say better to teach someone how to fish than to feed them fish. Why? Because if you teach them how to fish, they'll, know how to f they'll, know they'll have dinner every night. They won't only need your money tonight. So that is the difference between, uh, uh, you know, so that's, that's what we learn essentially from a, a gamal, a camel, very ordinary animal, right? But extraordinary in the lesson it teaches us of what real kindness is. Someone asks you, you know, can you help me? I'm, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of kindness. An incredible story of kindness. So a man once came to the rabbi of his community. This is back in Europe. And, you know, it was the eve of Pesach. It's right before Pesach. And he comes to the rabbi. He says, I, ne I need you to give me a halachic ruling. I need you to give me a halachic ruling. I don't have money. I really can't afford wine. Is it okay, instead of the four cups of wine, that I use four cups of milk. Okay, that was the question he asked. Now, what do we, when you hear this question from your congregant, you're all the rabbis, okay, you're the rabbi, your congregant comes to you and gives you this question. What do you hear from it? He doesn't have enough money for wine, and he wants to know if he can use milk. You know what the rabbi heard from it? 
If he's going to be drinking milk, he certainly doesn't have money for meat. Right? See, he gave him a larger sum than what he would just need for wine. He says, go buy yourself some meat too. In the question, there's something you can learn about kindness. Is there something, how do you get this person past the stage that he's at? He's asking about the, the wine because he really means that. He's not asking for the meat. But you infer from what he's asking, he needs more than that. We'll talk about kindness. It's one of my favorite traits. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about kindness because kindness is such an essential trait. You know, my grandfather, of blessed memory, in his book, when he talks about the trait of kindness, he says something so unique. He says, he brings a verse from the Torah, which we just read uh, two weeks ago. And the word, the word says uh, in the Torah, it says that when you see a poor person, when you see a poor person, see their lackings. See what they're lacking. So my grandfather presented the following challenge to his students. He says, I want you to go back after this session, and I want you to find all of the, your friends, your roommates, the ones sitting by with you by the dining room table. I want you to find what their lackings are. Everybody, every human being has a lacking. Every human being has a lacking. One person needs a word of encouragement. One person needs a smile. One person needs a hug. Everybody needs something. Go, he tells us, my grandfather told his students, go find the lackings of your fellow. And they would meet every week. He came back the next week. He says, so, how was it? And they had the most difficult time. Because you see, I grow up, every human being I believe is the same as me in, in this way, right? I know what I need. I know when I'm thirsty. I know when I'm hungry. I know when I'm tired. I know when I need the restroom. I know when I'm energized and excited. I have no idea when you're excited. I have no idea when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, except, by the way, people who are more spiritually in tuned. Women. The Torah tells us that women understand their guests. Right? A guy could be sitting with his friend for two hours, schmoozing on the couch. The wife walks into the house. She just comes back from, from shopping. She's like, you don't offer him a drink? Don't you? She understands he's thirsty. But he's like, what do you mean? We're just schmoozing. He, he can get a drink. He knows where the, where the drink is, right? right? No, no, no. What, what the Almighty wants us to do is be God-like. Adame. I will be God-like. I will emulate God. How to think beyond ourselves is really the goal. I know that I'm not thirsty. If I was thirsty, I'd get myself a drink. What about your friend? Why don't you know how to understand where your friend is at? I'll share with you one more uh, story about kindness. Uh, my rabbi of blessed memory, uh, Rev. Beryl Eisenstein, grew up in Chicago, and he went when he was a young man. He went to learn in the great Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem. Now, I visited the, yesh the yeshiva af after not being in Israel for about 14 years, uh, not living in Israel, not learning in that great, great uh, institution. There's over 9,000 yeshiva students learning all day, every day. And we took a group when we went to Israel in, in February. We went uh, to see the yeshiva, and it's like, it's unbelievable. I mean, you're seeing world-class Torah scholars, 9,000 of them. 
You walk into the into the into the room and you hear the noise of Torah. You hear the energy, the excitement. It's just unbelievable. So they have a building here and another building here and another building here. It's like this campus built into a community. Right? So it's like embedded in a community. Any building that goes for sale, the yeshiva buys it. Right? They they buy they, they just need more more uh, more study halls, they need more dorm rooms, they need more lunchrooms. We went there, they, they serve 14,000 schnitzels on a Tuesday. All right, this is an incredible institution. Um, un- unbelievable. And just studying Torah. That's it. Study Torah. This is like the, the Harvard, the Yale, and the MIT of, of yeshivas. Okay, all in one. You have the most brilliant minds there. It's re- really incredible. I'm going to be doing another trip in February. If you're interested, we can talk later. But, uh, and we're going to go see the Mir Yeshiva. But my rabbi learned there, and his rabbi, they have time, there's a time where they sit and they have a lecture. And the rabbi's about to begin the lecture. And they have a lecture not in the big study halls, they have him in actually like a classroom. But the classroom is fits about four or 500 people. And the everyone's getting into the classroom and it's, you know, it's a, about to start one o'clock. The class is about to start. And the last two guys come to the classroom and they're looking around at the door and there's no more chairs. So they both run out and dash to find themselves a chair. And the, the rabbi sees they come back. They each bring themselves a chair. And they sit down. So the rabbi takes his Talmud and he closes his Talmud. He says, today... We're going to learn, not the Talmud. Today we're going to learn kindness. And he talks about these two individuals who just walked into the classroom. They saw they didn't have a a chair. They also saw, but they didn't pay attention, that the other one didn't have a chair. So here they had a perfect opportunity to get a free act of kindness. You bring him a chair, and he'll bring you a chair. No. Instead, they each brought themselves a chair. That's not kindness. It's the same exact act, but thinking about someone else. And it's free because you know they need a chair. They know you need a chair. You might as well just bring it for him. He'll bring it for you. And you get a free act of kindness. The problem is, is they're not in tuned to thinking about the needs of other people. And that's the problem. The problem is we're not in tuned. We're not recognizing what are the needs of the other. Yes? That uh, that they should have gotten one for them. Perhaps. I think I, I think this lesson my rabbi told it to me about 40, 50 years after he heard it uh, from, from his rabbi. That's how strong of an impact it made on him that you need to think about someone else. And potentially they should have. That's correct. Right, bring the whole, the whole roll of cheers, right? 100%. But that, uh, you understand, the idea is get starting to think about another person. And this, we're all talking about, talking about a dog, right? About a dog who is right, just learning that, that trait from, oh, sorry, from a camel. Okay, what's another? I'll give you uh, one or two more 
um, that animals that we can learn from. And then we'll continue uh, talking about our Musar traits. Um, another one would be a, a nimala, a little ant. A little ant. It's called a nimala. You know what uh, King, King uh, Solomon, the smartest of all men, you know what he called a nimala? He says like this, Lech el nimala atzel, lazy one. Go to the ant and see how it works. See its ways and become wise. Did you ever see a, 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 an ant with the sunglasses on, sitting on a beach chair, relaxing, reading the paper? No. You know why? He's busy working. Do you know, King Solomon tells us, the, the, the Gaon of Vilna says that in his commentary on what King Solomon says here in this verse, he says that a, an ant needs one kernel to live through its lifetime. It needs one kernel, that's it. You see, it get that kernel, it's going back to his, uh, to his uh, nest, and that's it he needs for his entire lifetime. And it collects over a thousand kernels throughout its lifetime. It only needs one to live. And he collects over a thousand. You know why? Not because he's a hoarder. But because his nature is to work. Amelut. Amelut comes from the word nimala. It's the same ayin, mem, lamed. The same root is to work. It only knows how to toil. Non-stop. It doesn't, it can't stop. Sorry, can't, can't help it. So King Solomon's t- saying, lazy one. Go to the ant. Go see how he lives his life, and you'll become smarter. Nonstop toil. Work, work. You know why? Because human beings, that's what Adam le'amal yulad. A man was created for toil. You say, I'm retired already. It's okay. I can just, you know, I'll just, uh, no. It's a terrible. I have seen. Anybody here, you're too young to be retired. Uh, all of you. So, so you probably won't understand. You won't be able to relate. But I've seen many people who have retired over the years, being here at Torch now, 15 years. Um, I've seen people who have been very productive people go into retirement and their health, they wither in no time, a matter of months, and they're done. I've seen so many stories like that. And I've seen the opposite as well, where they've been invigorated, to find something to do. They'll volunteer here, they'll volunteer there, they'll go here, they'll go there, they have a class, they have a, a meeting, they have someone, they go, they're busy all day and they stay healthy. The, s- the, 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 the key to success in life is being busy. A, yes. Yeah, so there, there are many, many, it's right, that, that's one, one amazing one is that they all work together, but also they don't steal. You know, every ant has a unique scent, and once they touch their, their, their uh, I guess their, their little morsel of food, their kernel of food, it gets their smell, and no other ant will ever touch it. 
Imagine if you touch you touch something and it gets your fingerprint, and now someone says, "Oh, it's not my fingerprint. I'm just going to go <laughs> move on." Right? Imagine we lived in such a great world, right? But they they have that scent that's unique to them. And if you if you ever notice, they'll come walk by, right? If you ever looked at a, at a, an ant, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, a colony. Col- a col- right? A colony, right? So they they walk in a straight line one way, they walk in a straight line the other way, and if someone if one of them drops their kernel. Everyone's going to walk right around it and continue going. They walk right around it and keep on going. Right, right. It's not theirs. They're not going to touch it. Right. It's an amazing thing. Either way, thank you. Thank you for, for, for bringing that up. So that's one of the things we learned from an ant. Constant work. Constant toil. We don't stop working. Just because we're older and we don't have our, our job and we succeeded in our career and we have a nice retirement, we have to keep ourselves busy. Adam la'amal yura doesn't only say when you're young, work, right? No, the idea is to toil. Find something to volunteer, read a book, challenge yourself, get a new career, something to be busy. The last one we'll talk about is a donkey. A donkey. So what is a donkey? A donkey is called in Hebrew, anybody know? Chamor, right? A chamor is a donkey. Now, interestingly, a a uh, the same word, the same root is chomer. Chomer means material. If you want to understand what materialism is, understand what a donkey is. Um, okay, so this is I'm holding here something which is material. What happens when I drop it? It falls, right? You grab it. That's material. That's what it is. It just falls. It has w- has one purpose and one purpose only. Okay, it's material. A donkey has no purpose. It's just material, right? You know, a sus, a horse, has a, a unique characteristic. It comes from the word sas. It's, it's giddy. It's, it's happy. It jumps the way it in which it runs. It gallops, right? It has some royalty. It's, it's regal. Okay, there's the characteristics of all animals. Everyone has something unique. What is a donkey? Blah. It just schleps. That's what it does. You have a load you need to take, a burden you need to take from one place to another place, pack it on your donkey, and it'll schlep it. Does it have a character? No character. It's just material, right? If you, they, people, if they want in a crass way, if people want to call someone I- unintelligent, they'll call them something with, uh, uh, with a, uh, a, a donkey's uh, you know, a s- you know, idea, okay? Th- that concept of, of you're just blah. <laughs> you're just... Right, you're just material. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing, nothing unique. There's no character. Not using your mind, just schlep. So, how does that relate to us? This is very interesting. The Talmud says that uh, Talmud says a very interesting statement. It says that Mashiach, our Messiah, is going to come riding on a a donkey. And I don't understand. I mean, come on. Okay, let's let's be real. Okay, we're living in year. We're almost at year 2020, 2019 right now. And you're telling me that Messiah, when he comes, he's going to come riding on a donkey. Give me a break. Okay, Messiah today should be coming in a stretch limo, or come in his private jet, or right? No, it says a Mercedes. Right, <laughs> right. He'll come. I don't think he'll come in a Mercedes. German car, right? But, uh, uh, but. Uh, but, like, imagine, right, Mashiach today, Messiah will come riding on a donkey. Come on, that's, that's ridiculous. 
okay, I hear a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, before they had the automobile, before they had the locomotive, before they had on a donkey. That's crazy. So let's understand what a donkey represents. Like we said earlier, if a donkey represents materialism, it makes a lot of sense. Mashiach is going to come riding on a donkey, on the materialism. Look at the world we're in today. We're a world that is controlled by our materialism. The materialism is riding us. Right? We, we can't even wake up without looking at our, at our phone. Right? Wherever we go, we're bing, looking at our phone. We're total slaves to our materialism. So who's in charge? Our materialism or us? Who's riding who? perfect for our generation. Mashiach will come riding on materialism. He will show us how we need to be in control of materialism, where materialism doesn't control us. Where our homes, our fashion, our jewelry, our, our technology, our cars, they don't control us. I'll give you an example. Anyone here ever buy a brand new car? Brand new car? You remember that excitement? You wake up in the middle of the night and you look, is my car still there? Right? Is that someone near my car, right? Is that was that a scratch, right? Is that right? And we get all why? Who's controlling who? I can't even sleep. I'm so excited, right? That's materialism controlling us. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Or is that us controlling our materialism? I'll tell you an, an interesting story. My father, may he live and be well. Uh, he bought. I remember back in 1989. He bought a Toyota Camry. I was like, it's like you walked into a rocket ship. It was so, the technology was like, wow. Right, all the buttons and all the, it was just, I remember my father's like, welcome to the cockpit. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> he was so excited. You know, my father was a pilot, so for him it was like, also, it was like, you know. So either way, I, I come in the first day and I was like, wow, just like that, that new car. It's like, so my uncle came to visit a few days later. And uh, he needed to just run out to get uh, to get something, so he asked my father, "Can I can I borrow your car?" My father's like, "Sure," gives him his keys. Didn't say a word. It's a new car, nothing. Can imagine first time he's driving the car, he hits the front right light, right the front right light. The glass is broken, and comes back and he tells my father, "You know, I'm um, I'm sorry, your brand new car, but I uh, I a little hit the light." My father got rid of that car five or six years later. Never change that light. Never change that light. You know why? It's not controlling me. I'm controlling it. It's here to serve me. I had a neighbor who used to buff his car every single day. Now you tell me who's riding who, right? <laughs> every day. He'd pull out. He had a beautiful pickup truck, a black, beautiful pickup truck, brand new, just retired from his, you know, he had a, a very nice career at U of H, and he'd pull it out of the of his garage, and get that that scrub, and he'd wash it down like it was a little baby giving getting a bathtub. You know, every single spoke of the tire, he would he would go through. Now tell me, who's really in control of who? That was three hours of his day every day, right? And I was his neighbor, like neighbor neighbor. And he told me, he says, you know, I'm afraid that branch might fall, like. I mean, it might fall on my truck, right? Can you cut it down? <laughs> so I was like, of course I cut it down, no problem. We were, we, we were great friends, but is that really a way we want to live our lives? 
to be in control in control or be controlled by our materialism that is a donkey that's one of the lessons we learn from a donkey have something beyond just materialism be in control of the materialism any questions beautiful excellent so muster is the ability for a person to maximize his potential that's essentially what we're trying to accomplish how do we maximize our potential so the the four animals we brought of kelev the dog the gamal the the camel the nimala the ant and the uh hamor the donkey are just a few examples of the millions of animals we have in this world of how we would learn the Torah wisdom, the Torah knowledge of how to have a good character if we didn't have a Torah. But the purpose of it all is really to maximize our potential. So we have the real of who I am, okay, where I am, and we're going to be doing this with all of our traits that we're going to talk about. So let's say the trait of kindness we mentioned earlier. So where am I with the trait of kindness? Uh, one of the people who did that, that, uh, that uh, list that we gave out last week, that chart, I, I, I didn't bring, a, I can get some copies made hopefully here at the office. But um, to rate yourself where you are with each of the traits. And so imagine your trait of kindness, uh, you rate yourself in your uh, 5 out of 10. You know, So you, you're honest and you say, you know what, I'm not really that kind. I really want to be more kind. I really, I, I aspire to be greater with this trait of kindness. So we have to know the real, where we are. Then we have to have the ideal. What would I like to be, right? What would I like to accomplish in this trait of kindness? And then we have me now. What can I achieve in my current situation? With the tools I have now, with, not hypothetically. It's like, you know, people say, right now, you know, my business is okay. But ideally, I would like it to be over there. So now we're going to every, change everything to something we, that's not realistic. You have to take what you have with your manpower, with your people. Be realistic with who you are, what you have, so that you can accomplish the next step in a real and meaningful way. So with Musa traits, it's exactly like that. You don't try to say, you know what? Oh, I went to the sermon. Did you hear the rabbi's sermon? He spoke about not speaking Lashon Hara. It's terrible to speak negatively about other people. That's it. I decided I'm never going to talk negatively about anyone else. And that lasts for about four minutes, right? <laughs> because right after, right, after the, right after the blowing of the chauffeur, you walk outside and you go to the guy, oh boy, he blew it, right? right? And he's like, so, and, that, and that's it. And there goes the Lashon Hara, right back in, 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 into full swing. When we, when we take on something that's, that's insurmountable, something that we, that we cannot accomplish, right? It's, it, it does damage to us because you know, we accept the thing on ourselves and it's not realistic. And then we say, you know what, you know, <laughs> I failed, right? And we don't want to feel a, a feeling of failure. We have to have a constant rea realistic understanding of our capabilities, of who we are, what we are, and what we can accomplish. And we're great people. Human Humanity, Adam, mankind is so incredible. We have such amazing abilities, but we have to be realistic. What can I accomplish? Can I say I'm never going to get angry again? Can I say I'm never going to be jealous again? Can I say I'm always going to be humble, I'm never going to brag? Right? It takes time. You know what? I know where I am now. We took that, that analysis. Right? I know where I'm at. I know what I want to accomplish, and now I have to be, reali be realistic. 
How do I take one single small step to accomplish that? We're going to talk about small steps in a minute. So the greatness and power of change. It's very important to understand that in Kelm, one of the great Musser uh, centers of the world, they used to tell the students, we don't want you to become big and great and holy and righteous. We want you to change. Just change. Change is the most powerful thing we have in our lives is to change one one little uh, degree of change changes the entire course of our life no one's saying change 180 degrees turn around you're going east go west and just ignore everything you've done no change one degree you've changed your entire world change another degree you change it and we're trying to not change everything right don't focus on becoming better focus on change do you know, it's very interesting, we're entering into the days of, uh, the days of awe, we're already in, in it every day since the beginning of the month of Elul, two Sundays ago, we blow the shofar in synagogue every morning, and it's to wake us up, it's to give us a, a, a wake-up call, you know, it's almost Rosh Hashanah, it's another two weeks is Rosh Hashanah, and that's it, the party's over, we're standing in front of our investor, God, and he's going to be asking us, are you a worthwhile investment? Should I do this again? God's sitting in his boardroom saying, let's see. How was this year last year? What's his year next year going to look like? And we're trying to impress him. God, you know, I, I, really, I really have good plans for this coming year. Right? I, really, I really do. I'm sincere. I'm going to change. Right? So a very interesting thing. The number 40 in Judaism has tremendous power. The number 40 is the most incredible number. In, in not it, we have every number in Judaism means something. Every letter means something. But numbers n- in general in Judaism have to, how many things do we know of the number seven? Like a thousand, right? Why? They all have the same exact uh, s- essence. The original state, the nature, like a bride circles the groom seven times. Say that they were meant to be together, right? This is the the natural state that they're that they're getting to, because it says that really. The, the husband and wife are two halves of one soul. The two halves of a soul. So now they're getting to their original state. Nature, seven days of creation. I can give you a th- literally a thousand things uh, having to do with the number seven. But I'm not going to get into it. We're not going to talk about the number seven. We're going to talk about the number 40. Uh, eight, by the way, is the number of above nature. Seven is nature. Eight is above nature. If you look at the miracle of Hanukkah, Hanukkah was a miracle of eight days. It was above nature. Right, a baby has a bris. A baby boy has a bris on the eighth day. Right, it's saying it's 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 it, it, where he gets to a state of beyond beyond nature. Okay, we, we I don't want to get into it too much because we can spend a year talking about numbers. We can start from the number one, and we'll, we'll you know. So, the number forty. The number forty is a really unique number, because the number forty. If you look at all of the things that have to do with the number forty, let's start. Okay, we'll list them. Noah and the ark. How long did it rain? 40 days and 40 nights. The Jewish people were in the desert for 40 years. When uh, we have the laws of Shabbat, there are 40 laws of Shabbat, 40 main uh, functions, right? 49 laws. Now, they're really 39, so why does it say 40? We'll see why. Right? It says 40 minus 1. Thank you, I can do math. Right? No, it doesn't say 39, it says 40 minus 1. It, when they give lashes to someone who has sinned, right? the court would give lashes. How many lashes did they give? 40 lashes. It was really 39. Again, they need to tell us how to count, 40 minus 1, right? 
It, what, what's going on here? A bunch of other things that have the number, number 40. Gestation. 40 weeks. In Jewish law, a baby is considered living at 40 days. It gets its first pulse from its brain at 40 days after conception. You have in a mikvah, a ritual bath has to have a quantity of 40 sa'ah of water. It's a quantity, a, a, a biblical quantity of water. Um, it's a, you think of like a quantity, we think of gallons. We think it has to have 40 sa'ah of, of rainwater. Why 40? All right. What else do we have in number 40? Um, the, right, 40 years in the desert. Moses goes up the mountain, 40 years, 40 days, right? So what's with this number 40? We constantly see the number 40, right? So our sages tell us, the Maharal really says this, one of the great, great uh, commentators, he deals a lot with this, this beautiful uh, analyzation of, of numbers and others, other great, great uh, commentaries on the Talmud. He says the number 40 always has to do with a new creation. Always a new creation is the number 40. What happened with Noah and the flood? God says, this world is rotten. We've got to start all over again. Okay, so it needs 40 days and 40 nights of rain to wipe away the old world, start a new world. Gestation, 40 weeks, 40 days becomes a living, a living creation. Right, 40 days becomes a living creation, 40 weeks till it comes to the world. Right. A mikvah, what is a mikvah? A mikvah is a ritual bath. Someone goes in impure, comes out pure. They become a new person. So they need a quantity of 40. What's Shabbat? Shabbat, we know that Shabbat, it says that we get a nishamayi teirah, we get an elevated soul that gets infused into us on Shabbat. We become a new person. So the laws are not 39. They're 40 minus 1. Right? The lashes, it's, to, it's, it's for sin. Right? Someone needs an atonement so now they're going to get forgiveness it's 40 lashes now let's think about something from the first day of the month of elul till yom kippur is how many days 40 days and if you look in almost every single book on self-help and change they have for some odd reason they have this magical number of 40 days you look, you speak to psychologists, and they say you want to change a bad habit. 40 days. It takes 40 days. You want to start a good habit. 40 days. Change the way you eat. 40 days. Change the way you sleep. 40 days. 40 days is the amount of time you need to really change something. To become a new creation. These days that we're talking about now, here in, in the month of Elul, really, essentially... It's the number 40, the magic of what we're trying to accomplish is not make promises for next year. Say, God, you know something? Next year I'm going to be different. Next year I'm not going to oversleep. Next year I'm not going to overeat. Next year I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, run after my temptations and desires. And next year I'm not going to be sold to my, to my technology. And next year, next year, how about this year? How about now showing we're going to be different? We have these 40 days to show that change so that, that by the time we get to Yom Kippur, God says, wow, this is a total, I don't even know who this person is. It's a different person. It's a different person. They're a different person. And the person, they say, oh, that Arya Wolby from last year, different guy. I can see he's, he's different. He doesn't have the same habits anymore. 
That's why these days are really important days. Why the chauffeur blowing is done throughout these 40 days to wake us up and tell us, clock is ticking, let's go. Right, it's time for that change to, 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 to really get into high gear. Abraham, Yitzchak, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, all asked God for one favor. Okay, we know, we spoke about Messiah. We know there's a time, there's going to be a, a, a we're right now, I know it's hard to imagine, we're living here in Houston, Texas, and, and the Texans are about to kick off their game, and there's nothing more important, right, than our sports and our entertainment and our all of the, the world that we're living in. We're so busy with so many things, we can't even imagine that we're actually in an exile. We really are in an exile. It's the fourth and final exile, right? If you look through all of the sources um, in the teachings, right, we'll find that there were three really awful ones, and now we're in the fourth awful one. We had a Holocaust. We've had a inquisitions. We've had pogroms. We have a, 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 a sad growth in anti-Semitism wherever we go. We're in exile. It's reminding us we're constantly in an exile, and we're waiting for that day that Messiah will come and the world will see that the Jewish people are God's chosen nation. They'll recognize the Almighty. Okay, great. So in whose merit are we going to have that? And Abraham says, you know what should be in my merit? Abraham says, you know, it should really, the final redemption should be in my merit. Why, wh Abraham, what did you do that's so great? He says, you're kidding? I didn't have a child until I was 100 years old. I was 99 years old. And then you asked me to sacrifice my son, and I said, I'm willing to do it. I'm ready to sacrifice my own son, my only son. I'm ready to do that for what? For my love for you. Shouldn't that be enough that the Jewish redemption should be in my merit? God says sacrifice is not enough. Sacrifice is not enough. Isaac comes to God. He says, God, could it be in my merit? It's the Midrash, right? Could it be in my merit? Uh, God says, what did you do? He says, you kidding? My father wanted to slaughter me. Because you told him. And I was pulling the knife over my neck to try to be slaughtered because I wanted to dedicate my life to you. I wanted to sacrifice my life for you. God says sacrifice is not enough. And Jacob says, I was in the house of, 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 uh, of Lot. I was, there for, for, um, I was there for 21 years. He cheated me. I, and I was loyal. I was dedicated. I sacrificed everything. I could have built a nice business in the meantime. And I, I did it. I, I, I served you properly. I sacrificed everything for you. God says sacrifice is not enough. And Moses brings his story. And everyone all the way down to King David. Everyone is saying it should be in my merit. It should be in my merit. And then comes Rachel. And Rachel says it should be in my merit. I gave up my husband so that my sister shouldn't be embarrassed. And if you remember the story, Jacob made a sign with his, with his soon-to-be, uh, with his fiancée, uh, Rachel. He knew that her father was a, trick, a trickster and that he would swap the, the girls under the veil. And he, you know, that's, by the way, one of the reasons we put a veil on the bride is Back, back to that, to that uh, Jacob and Rachel experience. But here, Jacob is about to go under the chuppah, under the canopy with Rachel. And he walks under the chuppah, and they have the rabbi officiating, and he whispers to her, he says, what's the code word? And she says the code word. He finds out later that it was Leah. It was the, it was the, it was the other sister. Why'd, why'd she do this? Because 
she knew her father and she knew her father would put her sister there in her place because in our place, in our city, you don't marry the younger girl before the older girl and he's going to do his whole trick on Jacob and Jacob's going to be there under the chuppah and he's going to say, what's the code? And she's not going to know the code. He's going to say, this is a scam. I want my real wife. Where's Rachel? And Rachel wanted to protect Leah from that embarrassment. And she knows good and well that Jacob worked for seven years from her father, who was a liar and a thief, to get her hand in marriage. And for all she knew, she was giving up her husband, her future. For all she knew, she was giving up everything in her life. Who's willing to give away her fiancé to her friend or to her sister just so that she not be embarrassed? Anybody, anybody you know? I don't know anyone like that. It's my fiance. It's my husband, right? And yes. No, that wasn't sacrifice. God says that is selfless. That is going beyond yourself in a way, and in your merit. It says exactly. So here's an amazing thing. If you look, if you remember the words, right, it says... Um, we have the crying of Rachel. She says, I wanted to be in my merit. And what does God say? You should stop crying and wipe away your tears. There's a reward for your action. Because your children will come back to their land. The redemption will be in your merit. Rachel, it's in your merit because you were willing to change your whole life for your sister. You were willing to give up everything, your whole existence, just so that your sister won't be embarrassed. That is a merit upon which, and we know that Rachel isn't buried in the, in the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs. She's not buried in Hebron like the others. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried there. Sarah, Rebecca. Leah are buried there. Adam and Eve are buried there. But not Rachel. Rachel says, I want to be buried on the road. Why? Because when the Jewish people are going to be exiled from Jerusalem and head to Babylon, they're going to be passing by my road and they're going to have a place that they can pray. I want this to be a place they can always come to pray. Yes. What do you mean she's the idols? Oh, she stole. Oh, oh. Because uh, she felt that her husband deserved to get paid for his work. And this was going to be the payment. Right? This was the payment. It, was, it wasn't stealing even. Right? This is the payment that was due to her husband for the work he's done. So it, was it wasn't stealing. Yes. Years ago, uh, I used to think that Jacob had to wait seven years to get Rachel for a wife. But didn't he marry her right after he married Leah? Wasn't it done? No. He had to wait another seven years. During those seven years, she already had six children. During those seven...
I'll, I'll look in, I'll look into into it. I'll I'll I'll, 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 I'll no, no 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 no. I'll look into it. It could be I'm wrong. I I I don't necessarily. I don't know everything. I don't know everything. So I I'll look into it and I will I will verify. It's very possible. Right. Right. It could very well be. You're jogging my memory a little bit. I'm very old, so my memory is right. So, so the um, it could be that I remember someplace back there that 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 it was that that indeed he did marry her right after, but he had to still work that seven years, right? Yeah, I I remember something like that. I will I will look it up and and double check it. Okay. Yeah. So I want to share with you another another couple of amazing stories. Um, we're running a little bit late, so okay. My my great rabbi's rabbi, the one I mentioned to you earlier, who closed the Talmud to teach the lesson about kindness. I want to tell you another story about him and what it means to really change and to re- really become a different person. So anybody here heard of the Six Day War? Well, of course, we heard it's one of the most amazing, miraculous wars ever. I want to tell you something about this war that most people don't know. Actually, at the Mir Yeshiva building, I showed everyone uh, an amazing, this story, okay? So they have, under the the building of the Yeshiva, they have a big, uh, like a, um, a bunker, right? A fortified bunker. And um, the whole community, when the sirens went off during the Six-Day War, this was day five, of the Six-Day War, they're sitting under under the building, right? And um, the building, the yeshiva building, was hit with a mortar shell. And the yeshiva building is, was right on the Transjordan border. Okay, it was right on the b- on the border. Um, in fact, it's probably about 50 feet from the border. And oh, what used to be the border now it's Jerusalem proper. But either way, the building got hit with this mortar shell. And if you look at the building, we, s- we saw this. There's a whole area on the top of the building where there's new stone there, right, that they replaced to cover the, 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 the stones that were blown off the building. But the whole building shook. And everyone inside the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the bomb shelter was, like, shook, you know, by, by, the, by the, you know, it's very powerful. And um, a woman stood up. And she cried out, Chaim, I forgive you. And the rabbi saw this. And he went over to his students after. He says, I just want you to know something. The war is ending tomorrow. <laughs> what war ends in six days? No war in history. No. Right. What does the rabbi know that nobody else knows? The rabbi said this war is ending tomorrow. And indeed, the war ended that next day. How did he know? What did he know that was so great that the war had to end the next day? He said an, an amazing thing. He told his students the following. He says, this woman, who was she? She was a woman, a mother of many children. And her husband one day walked out on her. She never got her get. She never got her divorce, do- divorce document. She never was able... Never got a penny from him. He just walked out and left. She can't marry anybody else. She's a woman who's struggling to raise her children. She's a woman who's struggling to make ends meet. 
She's a woman who justifiably hates this guy and doesn't forgive him. This is the way you leave us. This is the way you alienate us. And she found the strength within herself to say, I forgive you. To change on such a level, the whole world changes. It is so powerful for someone to be able to overcome. How many times, it's an amazing thing, you'll think about this for a second. Children on a playground, I take your ball, right? You get angry at me, okay? We fight about it, and then we continue playing, right? That's the way kids are. Adults, you insult me for the next 30 years. I won't talk to you. I won't invite you to my children's wedding. I won't invite you to their bar mitzvahs. I won't invite you to any exciting event that I have. Why? You see, children have something that adults don't have. They have a desire to be happy more than they have a desire to be right. Adults have the desire to be right more than they have a desire to be happy. I'm right. Okay, so let's say you're right. So you're right. So what? But you're not going to be happy for the next 20 years. You're not going to have... I know people, people have come to me and talked to me about this and said, you know, I haven't spoken to my sister in 30 years because she named her child the same name as I named my child. And it... Come on, really? Is it worth not talking to your sibling for 30 years for that? And people get so small. They get so caught up. They get so... For, for, for nonsense... Is it worth it? Right, so look, nothing's in our hands. Only our actions are in our hands, right? I can't control what anybody else does. I can't even, maybe not even influence what someone else does. You You have children. You know how much influence you have. Right? <laughs> Very little. Right? You try to create an environment. You try to cre- create a certain circumstance that they grow up with love and, 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 and endearment and with, 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 uh, with, uh, with, a, with a passion. Right? You try, you, we try to influence them. We try to give them. But at the end of the day, every person makes their own decision. Every person. I can't decide for anybody else what they're going to do. I can try. I mean, you think about your children. Think about your spouse. Think about you can, can you can you dictate for someone what they're going to do? No, they decide for themselves. They have their own mind and they they do what they want. The only thing you have is how you can react to it. So someone can be evil and they can be your family member. And you can decide for it to influence you or not. That's your choice. Uh, we have a choice of how. Now, I'm not a therapist. But if someone is in a situation where it's really, if there's abuse or if there's something like that, then absolutely that has to be reported and that has to be, you know, that has to be taken care of. There's no question. We should never sh- shove anything under the rug. But we can't change what other people do. We can only change ourselves. And here this woman took upon herself, you know what? I forgive you. And it's changing herself. I want to tell you another story. Um... I'll just uh, uh, just uh, the idea of changing one trait. 
one single trait. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musar movement, the modern-day Musar movement, he used to say that changing one trait is more difficult than learning and memorizing the entire Talmud by heart. That's 2,711 pages of Talmud. It's more difficult to change one trait. Arrogance, right? Someone has the trait of arrogance. Someone has the trait of anger. It's more difficult to change that trait than to learn and know and memorize the entire Talmud. It's very difficult. But we can take a step, one step. My great-grandfather, I mentioned this last week, worked. He, had, he was a man of terrible affliction and terrible pain. Uh, and he worked on a single trait for two years to reach perfection. The trait was to greet every person with a smile, with a countenance. With you see someone, good morning, how are you? Right? You know what, you're having a miserable day? Nobody cares. Right? Show a smile. You walk into an elevator, everyone's like, you know, nobody. Good morning, everybody. Everyone's day changes. How's your day today? Right? Greeting every person with a smile. You're busy, you're cooking, it's 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 the eve of Thanksgiving. You're having family come in, and your neighbor's child comes into the house. Hi, uh, my mom wanted to know if and and the, you know, Kate, can you get a life? Get out of here. Okay, no, 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 no. Yes, darling. How are you today? How can I help you? Even in a stressful situation. In every situation, imagine that in every situation we always greeted someone with a smile. What a different world it would be. It took my great-grandfather two years to work on that trait. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. But you become a different person. And then you're talking about a person, I think I mentioned this last week, a person who had terrible affliction, terrible pain, suffering. His wife passed away when his youngest child was a few months old. He had many children. And he was handicapped himself. This is back in the 1930s, the 1940s. You didn't have medicine like you have today. You didn't have wheelchairs. You needed someone to carry him every day from his house to the yeshiva and the yeshiva back. Suffered his whole life. Notwithstanding his own suffering, greet every person with a smile. He's in pain. He'll greet everyone with a smile. I want to leave off with one, with one thing. Jacob blesses his children. Unbelievable. He blesses them, gives them great blessings. Now, if you look at the blessings, two of the blessings make no sense. Shimon and Levi. Simeon and Levi. Right? The Levi. Well, what's their blessing? You know, what he, you know what he tells them? You guys are murderers. You guys use weapons to kill. And he, what is he referring to? He's referring to when their sister, Dina, was abducted by the people of Shechem. And which today is Nablus, right, the city of Nablus in, in Israel. And they are, uh, they make a deal with the people of Shechem, and they say, you know what, because the people of Shechem say, you know what, why, why are we separated? We should just be family, you know, we'll marry your daughters, your, you'll marry our, our daughters, and it's like, we'll just be kumbaya, and everything will be great. And, so, and Shimon Levi say, you know what, it's a deal. No problem, but the men will have to circumcise, 
right? All have to circumcise. They say, no problem. They do a circumcision fest. And what happens three days after circumcision? That's when you're the weakest and it's the most pain. Shimon Alevi come and they kill the entire city. You're not going to make our daughter into a prostitute. You're not going to make our daughter, our sister, into a, right, into a, you're not going to treat her like that. We're a family of royalty. No one's going to treat our sister like that. And it's interesting. That's the blessing that they get. What type of blessing is that? So my grandfather writes a beautiful idea. He says, what's the difference between a blessing and a criticism? It's very interesting. So if you really love someone, the greatest gift you can give them is giving, give them constructive, loving, constructive criticism. The greatest gift you can give them. That doesn't mean you should go around criticizing people. Loving, constructive criticism. What does that mean? That means the following. So I see someone has a, a trait, a negative trait. Right? They have a blind spot. We mentioned last week. Everyone has a blind spot. If you have a, someone who cares about you, they will see that blind spot. There's a car there. Careful, watch out. Oh, oh, I didn't see it, right? That blind spot for us could be our anger. That blind spot for us could be our jealousy. That many, many terrible traits could be in our blind spot. And we need someone to bring it to our attention. Someone who loves you, someone who cares about you, will bring it to your attention. Jacob here is bringing it to their attention. You have a blind spot. You don't realize this. And I want to bring it to your attention so that you can change. But I want to tell you something amazing. I'll tell you why it's even more powerful than a blessing. So I give someone a blessing. You should win the lottery. Does that mean they're going to win the lottery? No. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? I'm putting a goodwill out there. I don't know that it'll ever happen. I give you a blessing. Right? You should have a good marriage. Does that mean it's going to happen? doesn't mean anything. I give a blessing. I put out a good wish out there. It could happen. It could not happen. But if I tell someone, someone who I love, someone who I care about, someone who I thought about how to say this properly, I, th I thought about the right time to say it, and I take the time to say it properly, lovingly, caringly, for their benefit, I tell them that criticism, that one ounce of constructive criticism, it's in their power, in their ability to influence that change in their life. They can become a different person because I brought it to their attention. You know, I, my, my wife is an amazing woman and she's never done anything to hurt me except once, right? One time I walked into the house and something happened and there were people there. I was thoroughly embarrassed to the core of my being. I was so embarrassed and humiliated and I was like, I left the room. I went to my to my room. I had to change. And it was it was raining outside. It was a whole thing. Either way, I change and I accepted upon myself that I'm not going to say a single word for two weeks about this incident. I was thoroughly embarrassed to my core. And two weeks later, I wasn't angry. I wasn't mad. I wasn't upset. I made my wife steak dinner with wine <laughs> and we sat there at the table and we're talking and we're having a good time. And I felt that at that moment, two weeks later, 
now she's not upset. I said, you know, just a quick, a quick little note. You know, two weeks ago, and there's no emotion involved. Two weeks ago, something happened, and I just wanted to bring it to your attention. I'm sure you didn't intend for it to be insulting. I'm sure you didn't intend for it to be embarrassing, but it embarrassed me. My wife didn't even realize it, and she apologized profusely for it. She said, I, I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me. I'm so sorry. I, I feel terrible. I would never have said it. I would never have done it. I would never, right? And the whole thing was cleared away. It's as if it never happened. Now imagine the alternative. Imagine right when it happened, I'm like, excuse me? Right, what would have happened? You can imagine. World War IV would break out, right? Da, 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 the whole argument back and forth just to wait a little bit where that criticism can be accepted in a right time, in a right place, with the right thinking it through. I know this person. In what way can I say something that will be effective so that, and obviously, that has never happened again, obviously, and um, it was such an amazing learning lesson for me that if we, you know, sometimes we criticize because it bothers us. Right? It bothers me. And I'll tell you, the Talmud says something really, really, really shocking about criticism. It says that he who criticizes is actually seeing their own flaw. Right? Kol posel, bimumo posel. You see someone, you tell them, you know, why are you such an angry person? You know why? Because we see our own anger. We criticize someone why are you so stingy? Because we see our own stinginess. We see someone else's negative traits, but we're really seeing they're a mirror, a reflection of us. So we need to find, the Talmud says, just like it's a mitzvah in the Torah to criticize someone who you know will listen, it's a mitzvah not to criticize someone who you know will not listen. If you know they will not listen, it's a mitzvah to keep your mouth shut. Don't say a word. Well, how am I going to know? How am I going to know if they're going to accept it or not? Well, if you don't know that person well enough, you have no business criticizing them. That's right. Yes. It's sometimes it's difficult to, to So change change is a very difficult thing. Especially we we inherit certain trait characteristics and traits from our parents, from our grandparents, for right this you know, things we've seen, how they react to certain situations. So we adopt those situations, th those responses as well. And it's a very important thing for us to learn how to change them and become a different person, right? Uh, my father was a great driver, but he's a very aggressive driver. He likes to, he doesn't like, he's an Israeli. He doesn't like to wait for anything. He, 
and it was ju- just recently, and I, it was something I worked on. It's something I worked on for many years. And just recently, my father was here, and you know there was a car trying to merge into my lane. I said, please, go, go right in. My father's like, I would never do that. I would never do that. And he's like, I, I don't know how you have the ability to just let them in. I'm like, it's been a lot of work, right? To change is a big thing. And, and, and um, criticism, there's so much to talk about, but we're running late here. So next week, we're going to continue talking about small steps, a very, very crucial and fundamental principle before we start talking about actual traits to talk about small steps. If there, is que- if there are any questions, I'll be happy to... Uh, to uh, sure. Forgiven. It won't go into action. We have a lot of work here. <laughs> That's right. Because the heart is the bed of our actions. Right. That's right. So we, we have to take it from here to here. It's like you have the corporate office where they decide how the business is going to be run. But if you don't actually tell the people in the field the change that was decided in the corporate office, nothing's going to change. Right? So you have to, how do you tra- transmit that message effectively to the to the to the uh, all the stores, right? That the corporate office made a change in, in policy, right? That's exact. That's the, the the idea. There's so much more to talk about here. I wish I can continue for longer, but I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all of the listeners online. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My name is Rabbi Arya Wolby, and I'm coming to you live from Houston. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? Any questions? Yes.